Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. On this Earth Day 2021, this episode is one of my most anticipated. As you probably know if you've listened to any previous podcasts, I came to Micromobility because I saw it as a viable solution for rapidly decarbonizing the transport sector. Breaking down trips to be done, pairing it to the right size vehicle, and then using all the benefits we'd seen in the smartphone world applied to vehicles to make those the cheapest and least emitting options on the road. So I was incredibly excited when Horace told me of his latest project, looking at the current carbon emissions we have in the transport sector and trying to model the pathways for the options that are on the table. You can probably imagine where he gets to, but I don't want to spoil the show. As Horace notes, this is still a work in progress, so I'm incredibly excited to help him start sharing it in the weeks and months to come. We're putting this out as a primer so that folks may understand a bit of the narrative arc and probe a bit on the background and context of why Horace is looking at this. I think this could be one of the strongest and most profound arguments for why micromobility matters to date, and it's an invaluable contribution as a leg to the stool, so to speak. We're excited to hear what you think on Twitter, so please tag or DM us so that we can follow the discussion, or join Micromobility Membership and join us on the Slack channel and on webinars to talk about this. Before I dig in, I also can announce that the next Micromobility America conference is now scheduled for the 23rd of September, 2021. It will be at Pier 70 in San Francisco, and we'll have more than 50 top speakers from the industry, more than 1,000 participants, and 500 startups and brands represented. I am so excited to see this in-person gathering back on the schedule. If you love this space and want to find your tribe here, head to micromobility.io to find out more details and get your tickets. And without further ado, here's Horace. Let's go. All right. Hey, and welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today Horace. How are you today, Horace? (laughs) Always great. Always great to hear your voice. I am really excited for today's topic, and I'll tell you why. It's that... I have been thinking about the intersection of climate change and transport really for probably 10 years, pretty pretty intensively. And that's kind of how I ended up working at Uber because I was interested in shifting models and stuff of car ownership. And then obviously I came to it as like, how do we rapidly reduce emissions in transport? And so I have been watching with bated breath for the work that you're about to talk about today, because I've been hoping that maybe you would see that connection for micromobility and that we would get a chance to dig into it. And it seems like it has come true. So maybe do we want to just talk about how you came to doing it or like how, how you've been thinking about it? And then there is a presentation that's going to come out of this, isn't there? Yes, yes, indeed. And there'll be, you know, hopefully more than just a presentation. We'll we'll try to make this a, what I consider one of the legs on the stool that holds up the whole idea of micromobility. Excellent. Well, look, do you want to just maybe start in the place of a little bit of context and background to it? And then what I'd love for us to do is maybe take this through and we do a bit of a test run on what this presentation, kind of the thesis of this presentation may be and, and your intention for it and us doing this. So how I come to this additional foundational leg, if you will, this additional support of the of the theory of micromobility is mostly... Well, I've been reluctant to enter into this line of reasoning because I feel that 
what we should be incentivizing people with are opportunities and, and growth and increased value, increasing people's satisfaction. In other words, that this should be a pull, that micromobility should pull people to itself and not to push them from necessarily another alternative, which might be worse. And I think that it should be self-evident that this is a better option. So in, in some way, my reluctance was like, I, I don't want to be providing a stick. I want to provide a carrot. Now, having said that, you know, we sort of put out several carrots. We have the legs of the stool so far are, this is an economically interesting business. That's primarily why we created Micromobility Industries to become the forum and the community of those interested in the business of micromobility. And so therefore, mm -hmm. there's an opportunity. And I, I remember once being quoted on, I think it was Carl Wright who was writing an article about micromobility. And I, I said to him, rather, I wasn't too proud of this moment, but I said, you know, I don't think anybody in micromobility is doing it for environmental reasons. I think everybody's doing it because there's a financial reward in it. I didn't want to dismiss the environmental reasons, but I said, I don't, I just don't think that's what's driving people who are entering into this field, especially from the startup and, and sort of the, the founder side and those people who are investing. That was my observation. And that was a few years ago, maybe two years ago. And so that was one of that there was an economic basis for this opportunity. And secondly, it was about convenience. It was about supplying more accessibility and then it was supplying more optionality to consumers so that consumers would get huge benefits from this themselves. So one is sort of from the business side, the other is from the consumer side. So if you think about consumers' preference for vehicle types, for example, or transit, for example, there's this notion that, you know, they provide convenience, there's a job to be done, there's a choice to be made, and you tend to favor a bundle versus an unbundled solution. And so that we got into this whole question of the consumer mind, the behavior, how do we create incentives? What are the platform stories? What are the histories of technological shifts, et cetera, et cetera? So there was a lot of the question about, you know, how do we crank this S-curve up because, because of, of the demand equation? So in some ways, you know, we sort of have a supply story and we have a demand story. And so we don't have a, a stick. We don't have a kind of like, well, we instinctively understand that the alternatives are worse in terms of automobiles, but worse because they're inefficient and worse because they're costlier or worse as, you know, economic or convenience factors. But so in the back of my mind, however, there's always this question, well, I'm sure, and it almost should go without saying that this is a better environmental solution. This, this is a better way of transport because, come on, it was a bit odd to me, in fact, in the very beginning that the first critics of micromobility were the ones who said, well, scooters, and not only scooters, I should say, not all micromobility, but the critics of scooters were that, well, these things aren't particularly environmentally valuable yes, because they only last six months and you know then they get thrown away and, all that and sort of they need to be picked up in order to be charged and you know early pickups were done by trucks and it was clearly not a, an urban friendly and so on and so on it was a bit odd it was like uh, suddenly we had to be defensive about it and say well bearing in mind that you know there's a lot of other factors involved and the vehicle will get better and and operations will get better and a lot of things could improve there and you know, we had to be defensive about it. And I said, well, well, we should be on the offensive, I thought. I mean, come on. Micromobility is a blatant, obvious, better solution than going around in cars. Are you really arguing against that option mm. on an environmental basis? And so again, we had to 
do a little bit of damage control almost at that early stage. Now, back in my mind, it was had to be irritated once or twice. But then I, I got a request, which was an interesting request. And this was a founder who was looking to pitch an environmentally oriented fund. So I think there are many such funds. I don't know them personally, but there are, you know, I've never been in front of one, but there are these funds who invest either ethically or environmentally. And you know, he asked me, do you have any data on what the positive impact of micromobility might be and how do we actually quantify it? And I said, you know, I don't, but let me let me try to get you something that might be useful. And, and so I began down this journey with that simple one request. In fact, I have I gave him something in within three days. It was a basic analysis of, remember the market for miles? I took mm-hmm. that original model of market for miles, which broke down the total demand for transport as a kilometers quantity, right? There were a certain number of kilometers driven. And, you know, remember that we split it between like half of all kilometers driven are driven in cars, or rather half of the kilometers delivered are driven miles and or kilometers. And so that idea of taking those numbers and saying, well, what if we switch again? And this was my initial premise as well for the market for miles, is what if we switch 1% of the miles to micro and what that leads in terms of economic value? That was the original. So I took that and I said, well, considering the consumption, and there are tables out there that tell you the energy consumption for various modes. And the table included kick scooters and e-bikes and even walking and regular cycling and and then mm-hmm. all the way up to not just cars, but trains and buses and even aviation, you can get that number. So the thing was, I took that and calculated, okay, even by region, mm-hmm. this is what would happen if you switch those miles from, let's say, SUV to compact car, from compact car to micromobility. And I could say, okay, and by the way, the measurement had to come out in carbon dioxide as opposed to kilowatt hours, which is the normal measurement of energy. But there's a conversion Mm -hmm. between kilowatt hours and CO2. Of course, those efficiencies will vary and those emissions will vary. And, uh, you know, an electric kilowatt is not a gasoline kilowatt or metabolic kilowatt, which you'd have to spend walking, for example. But there's certainly an energy cost in all of these. And I put it, you know, that yes, if you convert it to electrical micromobility, then I said, for example, switching X percent of the demand in country Y would yield you Z, gigatons reduction. The idea was to get a number out there. And just to give you a flavor, and this is where I started to educate myself about how to quantify the carbon costs. And for those of you who aren't familiar with this, there's an interesting and rather simple model, which is as part of our the way we live, we generate carbon dioxide, and mm-hmm. it, it happens to be a greenhouse gas in sufficient quantities, meaning it traps energy from the sun into the atmosphere, and, uh, and thus the whole earth heats up a bit, and that this quantities of emissions is measured in gigatons of CO2, and downwards till, you know, every car is measured in terms of tons of CO2 or, or kilograms of CO2 per minute or whatever that measure might be. Mm-hmm. This figure is directly proportional in the case of hydrocarbons, which are, as the word implies, hydrogen and carbon, which are then broken down into combination with oxygen in the atmosphere through combustion become carbon dioxide, which is what this gas is, which is not harmful on its own. We can breathe it, but unless it's too much of it, and then we don't have enough oxygen, and we actually could lose Mm. consciousness. But it's not that level, 
that we're talking about that it's not harmful oh, to it's human tiny. life. Yeah, yeah, 400 parts per million. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's in measured in parts per million exactly. But this CO2 in the atmosphere does have this warming effect. And people knew this also way back in the 50s. And if mm. you do some calculations and said, okay, depending on how many hydrocarbons you convert into carbon dioxide, and, you know, by the way, the hydrogen ends up binding with oxygen and getting water. This is why you, your exhaust spits out water as well mm -hmm. as gases. And the water dribbles out of the exhaust pipe. And that's why exhaust, by the way, eventually rust because there's a lot of water that's having to be expelled as, as a result of combustion. The point is that when I started to think about these gigatons, uh, you know, I had to give an answer in gigatons. So if X micro gets switched, then we reduce the amount of gigatons emitted on a per year basis. And what was interesting is that you have to realize that there is a sort of a, a total emissions number. And this year, or last year, actually, I should say, is about, was about 42 gigatons, 42 billion tons of CO2. And if you reduce one gigaton, it's a big deal because that number is rising. And then you start to think about, okay, and I mean, you know all this, but that there's a limit I to do, what the atmosphere... But it was amazing to hear as you went through this journey, and this is just someone watching you, and maybe this is because I was really lucky. I got to learn about all this stuff when I was at university, but I just get the sense that no, that is actually not super common knowledge, you know? No. Like people aren't aware of the scale of the, of the challenge that we're up against. I certainly wasn't ever educated on this. I had to self-educate. And when you start to read, the mainstream media doesn't get into enough detail for you to feel comfortable that you know it. And the academic stuff tends to be very difficult to penetrate. So mm -hmm. there's this need to be sort of like comprehensive yet comprehensible mm -hmm. and understandable. So here's the way to think about it. And, you know, every year due to combustion and other things like certain uses of land and trashes and other things that decompose that we emit that do emit also carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases and it's not the only one but let's focus on carbon dioxide as it gets emitted it doesn't get absorbed back i mean there's a cycle where it goes back into living things which is mostly into biomass which mm -hmm. think about wood which is the source of carbon or wood or decomposing plant matter is what ended up giving us the hydrocarbons in the first place. They just were sequestered into the earth millions of years ago. And all yes. that carbon, and We're you know, burning ancient sunlight. I mean, that's Yes, that's we're burning ancient sunlight and it kind of got deposited over millions of years and we're burning it in decades. You know, so it's so like there's suddenly like this flame that burns all this uh, absorbed carbon and hydrogen into back into the atmosphere, which is what the harm is all about. And it's so understandable because the Earth is a closed system. Not much comes into it or out of it from space, right? And the Earth has a certain amount of carbon. Mm -hmm. That's why it's called the carbon cycle. That carbon is actually the sort of the raw material that plants are made of, and to a large extent, humans as well. That carbon needs to sort of change its state from being a gas bound with oxygen and a solid bound with hydrogen. And, and in this sense, like, you know, whether it oscillates between a gaseous state or a solid state is the whole balance that we're trying to fix. So to be simple about it, as, <laughs> yes. as we get these 40, 30, 20, whatever, it began much lower, but now we're at 42 gigatons a year. Mm -hmm. The whole atmosphere fills up with CO2 that doesn't get absorbed by plants fast enough or the sea, which actually the oceans also absorb it through their own life cycle. 
But the problem is it's just being put out there much faster. It can be absorbed. It's not a process that, hey, all the plants look up in the sky and they say, there's a, so much carbon, we're going to grow faster. They don't do that. There might be mm -hmm. more plants that could grow if there was more carbon, but they need their time. You know, they need soil and all these other things. So the bottom line is that there's a limit to what the total number is. Again, it's, it's building up. There's a total number that we have to stay under because if it goes above that number, we know that the earth will heat up above two degrees. And if it did, then it becomes unstable. It, literally, mm -hmm. the climate change happens because of instability, not just heat. And this is the interesting aspect of it is that when you think about the accumulation, it is a finite number. It's like there's a saturation point that we're targeting. The Paris Accord, I forget what year, was it 16, 2016, I think, yeah. or 15? That was, mm. that was an accord that countries said, we will... They didn't necessarily pledge to all hit their targets, but they're going to report and they're going to target a certain reduction in emissions so that we stay below that line. And that mm -hmm. has to happen within the next like 30, 40 years. Otherwise, you know, the whole planet tips into potentially an unstable state and it's already yeah, it's happening. Pretty, it's, it's pretty scary. Yeah, no, no, totally. Exactly. I mean, exactly. And, and so... As you went through this and learned about climate change, and obviously I think by the sounds of things freaked you out a little bit, where did you get to in trying to quantify this? So there's a question then, first of all, when you start to then back out of the 42, what are the parts of it that are crucial to our way of life, to our civilization? And then mm. you start to say, what is each subpart here? Because there are different processes at work. Obviously, manufacturing is one, making electricity is another, and transportation is another. Land use agriculture is a big one as well. Now, these are the main ones, and, and each one of them is being worked on. I mean, there are, you know, like power generation is the easiest to understand because you have a switch there from coal to natural gas to also a mix of renewables, so called, which are solar and wind, a little bit of hydrothermal, a little bit of nuclear. And when you start to look at, you know, how much carbon is coming from the coal process, then you say, well, there's actually a, a finite number of coal burning plants that we can actually target and ask, what does it take to get those out of use? And, you know, how can we also make sure that no new ones are built, etc.? But that is something someone can do on a spreadsheet within an afternoon to sort of collect the data for all the countries in the world and determine how many plants there are. And you can pinpoint your reduction by saying, okay, by each country needs to reduce the number of plants that are operating. And actually, this is happening. It's actually happening very successfully. In the UK, for example, they've reduced their coal plants almost to zero in some times of the year that they're effectively, Northern Europe in general, is effectively getting rid of coal as a source of electricity. Now, yes. the US is doing something with wind and you know there's solar everywhere a little bit. So some progress is being done there. And the decision process for this is gonna be like whether the regulatory bodies in those individual countries are going to incentivize or disincentivize plants being built or decommissioned. And so when you start to ask, okay, how many people are making decisions on electricity generation, I would answer it's in the kind of hundreds probably, okay? You know, there's like 150 mm -hmm. countries, there are dozens of people who are sitting on committees, there are government bodies, there are some local and some, you know. And so all is that happening? It's like maybe a thousand people are involved in sort of making the crucial decisions for the whole power generation sector. And then you start to look at manufacturing and there it's a lot more people, but you have a lot more kinds of plants and a lot more plants to deal with than the number mm. of power plants in the world. 
world. But there again, you can create incentives and disincentives to reduce impact. Agriculture, similarly, you know, you, there are plans being made. And all these sectors, actually, the U.S. and Europe have been reducing their carbon overall and per capita it's high. It's still too high. It hasn't hit their target. But it's uh, it been, is. It's, I mean, they've also managed to offshore a lot of their consumption. So like the production emissions from their consumption. So that definitely helps in their reduction. Yeah, there, there's some progress going on. And, and there's at least a lot of activity at some level. And, and not enough. Again, I don't excuse it, but I'm just saying that this has been ongoing. Then you look at transportation. We, you know, we're concerned with this, but you know, I should start with that. But I began also looking at all, all the others. And transportation, I said this also in the keynote recently, is like it's the only sector that's growing. Mm-hmm. It's the only one that the emissions is growing. And actually, even though it's going towards an electric future, it seems that it's growing even as EV adoption is rising. And I thought that's a peculiar thing to happen, given this hand-wringing about, if not existential crisis, if not an emotional crisis on everyone's part as far as climate change is concerned, how come transport is rising? And is the culprit, as some say, the trucking industry, I've seen fingers pointed at the shipping industry because you have these ships which burn a very dirty fuel, bunker fuel it's called. Mm. It's the lowest grade of diesel effectively that you can burn and that's what ships are burning and they're causing t- tons of emissions as you can imagine. Then you've got the aviation industry and people are getting anxiety about flying and saying I shouldn't fly, it's so harmful, it's so much CO2 and then there's words designed for it and so on and so on. And I said, well, is that mm-hmm. to be blamed? Is the trucking industry, I mean, think about all these diesel trucks filling the highways of the world. And when you look at the contributions of those, sure, they're nothing compared to the personal car. Well, I would say there's something, but there's roughly speaking, mm. cars worldwide, let's say, generate about three gigatons. All the trucks in the world are only two, and all the aviation in the world is less than one. And forget about trains and yes. cargo ships, they are all much less than one. So, you know, the total is about 7.4, out of which, mm-hmm. therefore, three is the personal car. So that's, by the way, three out of 42 is what we're actually chiefly concerned with. Now, of course, you might say, well, obviously, eliminating those three gigatons is not going to solve the whole problem. But remember, everybody else is doing their part, but that three is rising. In fact, th- this is the problem is that that three is rising faster than the, even the other transport sectors are. And that three is composed. Yes. And it's forecast to keep going very substantially. Yeah. This is what exactly led me to my, I said, okay, let's start with a clean sheet of paper and understand what makes up that three and where it's going. And fundamental to the whole model was the question of how many cars are in the world, because they're the source of this three, this three gigatons a year. That's what's generating it, okay? How many of those are gonna be electric? How many of those are going to be, you know, and now we have also a deadline because the deadline for the emissions is at 42. It needs to come down to 28 by 2035. So this is a number to remember now. By 20 th- and preferably zero by 2050. Exactly. By 2050, it's got to go to zero. That's incredible, by the way, to, you know, to think we're going to be a carbon zero sometime. And I think we can be and we will be. But it's like, it's like, how soon? And this is why the whole presentation began to take on a feeling that I've had before. And that is an analysis I did years ago 
on the question of technology adoptions. The sensitive matter about technology adoption is the time frame it happens, not whether it happens, not whether we get smartphones, whether we get telephones, whether we get electricity, whether we get cars, whether we get television. All of these adoptions in history all happened. And some, you might say, for example, cryptocurrencies are probably, if not certainly going to happen. But the only question we don't have answered is when and how quickly. And so this is where I said, okay, this starts to feel familiar in terms of sensitivity. We've got to reach a goal. It's inevitable. How soon can we get there? What are the, the factors that are driving it as far as accelerants and so on? And so I began to, with the fundamentals. I said, what's the population of cars? How many of those are electric? What is the switching rate to electric? Even if they are electric, how much is their CO2 footprint? And also, by the way, making an electric car is going to also boost carbon because they are quite complex to make. And so I began with an analysis of these critical elements. And one of the things, so timing is, is the first sensitivity. Second sensitivity is that these are populations. And you're dealing with populations of vehicles. And the thing about understanding a population is that it has a birth rate a death rate or mortality rate. It also has a lifespan, and therefore there's a useful life for every you know, machine as well as for every person in terms of life you know, duration and so on. And that there's segments to lives. And so when you think about, uh, when I started to think about cars, I began to apply techniques from demographics, which is understanding how many young people there are and how many old people there are and how many, you know, how, how life expectancy changes the dynamic and, you know, whether, you know, immigration and other factors are, are all that language from demographics is being applied to the automotive space. Every car, by the way, just, just another quick footnote here, every car in the world is a registered vehicle. There's no place in the world you can drive a car mm -hmm. without registering it. Therefore, it has a number plate. Therefore, it goes into a database. Therefore, it is licensed to exist, and if it ceases to exist, it cannot be driven. So some cars may actually exist as piles of junk somewhere in someone's backyard, but once they're deregistered, they're no longer dri drivable. And this is one of the important aspects of understanding a population, because that's your birth certificate. And that your end of life is when that certificate is revoked, and it's gone. Mm -hmm. And so the data we need is very easy to obtain. Unlike micro, by the way, micro is invisible is unregistered, nobody knows, nobody counts, yeah. nobody measures. It, it's one of the magical things about it. But the car industry, given its age and given its scrutiny, it actually is very easy to observe. And so I began to apply these techniques and, and I began to analyze things which f maybe aren't frequently analyzed, like lifespans. How long does a car live? And you have to dig a bit to find this data. And, you know, like the, the average age of a car today, by the way, is about 13, 14 years, depends on the country a little bit. But that means, mm -hmm. and by the way, the distribution of ages is normal, meaning that there's like, you know, around that midpoint, it's symmetric. So you have uh, half below it, right, and half above it. So some cars, clearly there's a, there's a significant number of cars above, let's say, 25 years, above 30 years even. In fact, there's some above 40 years. And so you start mm -hmm. to ask yourself, well, how many cars built today are going to be around 15 years from now? Well, the answer is almost all of them. There's no question because the average life is 15. Yeah. That means there's a half are going to live twice as long. So, you know, if you model it as effectively a simulation and you ask for every year from now until, I don't know, some target date in the future, let's say 2035, 
It's not that far away. It's 15 years. But for every year between then and now, how many new cars are going to be yep. made? How many are going to be taken off the road due to the normal attrition? How many are electric and how many of those are going to be made? So then you, I did all this. And I had to factor in what the total number of cars was. Today, it's about 1.1 billion. And that's just personal cars. I'm not including commercial vehicles. So I'm not including delivery vans or, or trucks, maybe some pickups, mm-hmm. but not all. So then you, you look at that number and that's 1.1. Again, overall vehicles is well, was like well over 1.4, but the personal use is 1.1. And then you start to project that forward. And now there's another element to this whole thing. It's like this population of cars is going to grow overall. And why? As I said before, my keynotes is because the average number of people wealthy enough to own personal transportation is rising. The urban population is rising, but also the economically, Mm -hmm. there's a threshold, like $30 a day, that is sometimes used for someone who's moving into middle class. And that allows you to buy Mm -hmm. a vehicle, maybe a secondhand Mm -hmm. vehicle, maybe just a two-wheeler, like a motorcycle. But it's generally, there's a a strong correlation, there has been forever, between personal wealth and personal mobility. And so that option value of like, I want to have my own vehicle to be able to go anywhere, anytime, is something that I've treasured and and wanted all my life. So so it's very difficult to deny someone who reaches wealth that option. In fact, China, this is where you start to go into the history. China went from having a population of cars in 2005. Again, I'm sure you can all remember the year 2005. It wasn't that long ago. I don't think there's anybody listening who's, you know, only 15 years old. You know, 2005 in China, there were 20.9, about 21 million cars in use, 21 million registered cars. Today, it's about 210. So 10 times more cars are in use in China in the only 15 years. India, India uh, it did go up mm-hmm. by 10x, but it went up, went up more than 3x, I think. You go around the world, and I did this in, in kind of getting the registration data from 2005, 6, 7, 8, and so on, every year in between. And I also actually got it all the way back to the very beginning. There's data all the way back to 1900 about car registrations. Because like I said, these are, wow. these are a species mm-hmm. that is very well controlled. It has to be very, so people were registering cars in France in 1895. That's when it began. It is actually registration data from France from 1895. There are like 350 cars that year. 350 cars <laughs> is year zero for registrations. Not the year zero for invention, but the year zero for registration. And so I have all this data and I'm like looking at the trends. And so you look at Brazil, you look at Australia, you look at New Zealand, you look at Finland, and you look at Canada, and you look at Mexico, and you look at Liberia, and you look at, and there are 140 countries you can look at. 140 countries, about how many years? Again, not everybody has it all the way back, but there's a lot of data. So I'm tracking the trends, especially 2005 to 15. This is the most recent 15 years. And every country in the world has grown its population of cars. Every country in the last 15 years. And if you go back far enough, again, every country that could have gotten cars has been increasing its population since the very beginning. There's no such thing yet in our world as a decreasing car population. Now, you might point to some exceptions which are very localized, 
perhaps some cities in the world have seen reductions, maybe a province mm. or, or something. But, you know, some people would say, well, what about Germany? Hasn't it? Well, maybe it's stayed flat, but it has actually risen. But in fact, so you, you look at, the, at, this, at this trajectory and you say, okay, what about the next 15 years? So you look back 15, forward 15. So I decided to look at this 30-year window, 2005 to 2035. It's a critical moment in, in the history of the world where we have to bend that, that carbon curve, right? It's got to happen now. We've got to start reducing, right? By in 15, we got to go from, from 42 to 28. That's nearly half. We got to do that, right? This time is of the essence, right? And what's going to happen to the car population? Well, it's going to go up to 1.8 billion, from 1.1 to 1.8. And again, I've said this before, and I said it before on the basis of looking at middle-income countries and their trajectory of adoption curve. Don't forget, every country that is adopting cars is following an S-curve. And those poor countries, uh, the poorest countries, Mm -hmm. are still very flat and very low. And then you see the middle group, which is sort of starting to increase and going up up the curve a little bit steeper. And you classify, you know, sort of, you know, early, middle, and late adoption. And they have the middle income group is in the middle adoption and the early income Sorry, the low-income group is in the early adoption. And so you can project incomes, you can project GDPs, you can project populations, right? The number of people, period, and the number of urban people, which, by the way, also are reflective of wealth. And so you see all these trends, and it is very, very clear that it's going to be at least 1.8 billion because of the increasing income and prosperity of the world. And this is short enough trajectory that, by the way, climate effect, if they actually appear are not having yet an effect on the prosperity. So th- that is a lagging indicator. Yeah. What is interesting then is this, that whereas we need to drop the carbon curve steeply, our car population or vehicle, I should say, vehicle population is on an inexorable rise and the demand is, is there. Now you might say, okay, but electric cars are coming, they're gonna save us. And this is where the heart of the presentation really comes. You know, I do a lot of setups. Mm. I do the setup on carbon. I see the setup on population, on trajectories, on all these things. And at every stage, there is enough evidence I provide. I, I don't make these statements simply out of the blue. I, I have to provide a plethora of evidence because why should you trust me? I'm not a climate expert, nor am I, you know, an auto analyst. But I'm just presenting the data. Look, this is all public data. I, I didn't have to go pay anyone to research this. It's all available with Google. So... This is the trajectories, and I'm like, okay, what are we going to do then? With because electric cars are coming, and so I, I, then I began to work on scenarios of electric car adoption, and this is where it, it got even more eye-opening, because EV adoptions are driven a lot by policy. You know, as you know, in Norway, it's one of the fastest adoptions in, in EVs, but that's driven a lot by the tax policy and by incentives. Totally. Yeah. It's, and, and massive incentives. Yeah, Absolutely. And, absolutely. and we're seeing that everywhere. But even then, it's like, what, 50% of new cars sold? Maybe? Yeah, but it's, it's gone from, you know, like 2016 or so when it began, it's ramped up nicely. And then that's actually a pretty steep adoption curve. If you look at the history of automotive that's technology. That's an insanely steep adoption curve. Yeah. Uh, by the way, one of the else. things I also yeah. illustrate in the data set is like, what are the historic adoption curves for automobile technologies? not automobile itself, although that has its own curve, but it's like technologies like, you know, fuel injection or anti-lock brakes or or air conditioning, even automatic transmission. All of these things have their own sort of 
time. And, and it's obvious to us today that, okay, oh well, yeah, power windows or, or power brakes or, or even, even safety considerations like, you know, safety glass. Obviously, this is, oh, come on, you have to have that. But it took time. It took some time for that to happen, right? So now, the, the question was, okay, let's look at Norway as a very good example. And like, what does it take to do with the Norway plan? And you effectively have to more or less forego a lot of tax revenue to do this because those cars are untaxed. I mean, it's massively expensive. That's the thing that I look at the subsidy programs is they're incredibly expensive. They are expensive, and yet- but and, and, and the manufacturing subsidies necessary to get manufacturers to do this. I mean, you know, we, we all rave about Tesla, but they, let's not forget that they also were beneficiaries of of certain subsidies and they got like their manufacturing plant, they got enough for nothing. Now, some of that was just a good fortune or timing, but you know, yeah. they, they got a- Well, they bought that off, off, off Toyota yeah. for, for nearly nothing. Yeah, $50 and, and, million and, and dollars for a plant that normally a, costs- a loan. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they got a loan for, you know, what it was it, 450 million or something that they then paid back and all that sort of stuff. But it, I don't disagree. I guess the part that I look at is, the thing that's very frustrating is when you look at all of the auto scaling, it's like, Tesla could scale as fast as they could, and they were at, what, 500,000 units a year? Yeah, and after 18 years. Yeah, after 18 years. And then you look at something like micromobility, like we will build a factory in India this year with Ola, and it'll pump out 10 million electric mopeds a year. Yeah. Yeah, so you you kind of anyway, you, you're running I, ahead I, I of this story, yeah, yeah. but that's good. Um, I am, I am. Sorry, I, I, yeah, yeah, I'll, I will shush. Yeah, no worries. Go for it. You know, I'm just laying on the evidence now. So one of the factors is that I took a look at the EV production rates, and I said, okay, let's call this Plan Norway. Plan Norway is like we ramp EV production as fast as we can. Again, we got we got an issue here with the climate, right? So let's make it as fast as possible. So every country in the world does what Norway did. And that means that in only 15 yes. years, what that projection is now is that 70%, 7-0 of mm-hmm. all cars, new cars being sold are electric by 2035. So again, in 15 years, the world is at 70% EV adoption in that sense of, of sort of new cars being sold. And that's, that's remarkable because the whole- New cars being sold, but not actually of the fleet, right? Right. But the market of cars is having to grow because they don't remember the, uh, the, the population is going to 1.8 billion. So we've got to find not only to sell to cars that have to be replaced, but we've got to sell between now and then an additional 700 million new cars to new buyers that never had a car before. 700 million, it's incredible, right? And so you're looking at that EV market at that time, actually is equivalent to 80 million electric cars being sold every year, 80 million. Last year, there were 3.4 million cars, electric cars sold. Mm-hmm. And that was an incredible mm-hmm. growth rate, by the way, from the year before, because like, you know, less mm-hmm. than 2 million were, and t- two years ago it was 1 million. Like we finally crossed 1 million in like 18 or 19, I forgot exactly, but it was not too long ago. And so like we're at 3.4, but we got to get to, we got to get to 80 in 15 years. And, and I don't yet, I haven't done this part of the due diligence is like really calculating the amount of resources necessary to do 80 million cars a year. And by the way, it's equivalent to between now and then of 430 million electric cars being built. So this is Plan Norway's no joke. I mean, it's about getting... 70% of the buyers to buy electric new. It's about building 80 million cars a year in 15 years. And it's about building 430 million cars between now and then. These are remarkable numbers. The global fleet of cars is 1.1. We're saying 430 million are going to have to be built between now and 35. And that's an aggressive strategy that isn't actually what 
the like the majority consensus is on where electric cars will get to right like if you look at iea or the international energy agency or any of these others like they're not forecasting that level of adoption are they like that's quite an aggressive strategy I, when you say i haven't surveyed all the forecasts i actually took a deloitte example as my only other check on this on this growth rate and it was mm. it was about the same but i think they're being very aggressive like i am my point is that let's call this plan norway let's say we're going to do this now given the, again what i've already established is is an inexorable demand curve for overall transport given the prosperity given the emerging markets given all that we end up with this 1.8 billion yes we end up with with 70% share but the, the fleet side the, of the entire fleet of cars the EV fleet is only 24%. Remember that it mm. needs to switch over existing cars. And remember, I started out pointing out that the cars are going to last decades. And that's just a matter of the fact, you know, they, they, the cars have gotten a little bit more reliable. So they're actually usually held longer. And by the way, that doesn't mean you own it for 23 years. No, no, no. This means if you buy new, you sell it in three to five years, but then there's somebody else owns it and then somebody else owns it and so on. And it might even mm -hmm. end up getting shipped mm -hmm. to a country in Africa, but it, it still ends up being in use for all that lifespan because that is what it's designed to do. And it's probably got a supply chain behind it to allow it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the, my assumptions about you know, the, the population. Now, what happens to carbon? Again, uh, the way I calculate carbon in emissions, I look at the fleet size. For each of those vehicles, there's a certain estimate of the CO2. There's an average you can use, something around 130 grams of carbon per kilometer, which is sort of the European standard. I'm not even using American numbers because, you know, this is a global story. Mm. So obviously the emissions I'm indexing off of Europe here. And, and a really, really efficient car in the in europe is going to get you at 100 so i'm you know i'm using something a little bit higher and, and by the way e even an electric car has emissions in the sense that it needs a grid to fuel it and and also i have to include by the way the manufacturing of the cars as emissions because you know you're going to build 430 million cars for a 1.8 billion market it's going to be a lot of carbon just to make them. That's no question, right? And then there's some estimates about how much carbon it takes to make a car and how much carbon it takes to make an electric car. So after all that, here's Plan Norway's results. Okay, I'm going to give it away. So you all know. Okay. <laughs> I'm ready. You ready? Well. I'm ready. Remember, the target is to go from three gigatons for personal cars down to one. Mm -hmm. I didn't defend why to one, but we have to go down from 42 to 28. But here's the thing. The transport sector has to go down proportionately. But remember those... Well, it just needs to go down, and generally. Well, it needs know. to go down. But let's assume we're trying to all do it in, in lockstep. We're not trying to go down together here. Some are going to do more, and some are going to do less than their fair share. But the question is, how much is transport? You know, if we were to target transport globally, nobody does this. I mean, they're going to do it locally. But globally, yes. let's assume like, it, you know, it's at 7.4. It needs to go down to roughly 5, something below 5. But here's the problem yeah. is that the non-consumer transport, the trucks and, and, and remember the uh, aviation, and those are actually very hard to compress. Why? Because airplanes cannot yet fly electrically. And it's not yet conceivable that we're going to be able to do electric airplanes in the next 15 years. I may have to remind you that aviation goes the slowest in terms of new developments of any industry, because of course its vehicles are the fastest. Remember, remember the old rule: the faster it goes, the slower it goes. 
the faster the industry's mm-hmm. vehicle, the slower it evolves. And the airplane industry, I'm reminded of a few, of a few facts. The 747 was first flown in 1971. The Boeing 737, which is still the most popular airliner in the world, was first flown in 1968. Mm-hmm. And it's still in production today. And although many, many revisions have been made, it's very hard to introduce a replacement for it. And so, you know, we have this very slow cycle time for aviation. So to imagine replacing aviation fleet, well, you you can do so, but not within 15 years. Then you look at ships. Okay, yeah. same problem. Big ships, maybe you can get a, you know, a more efficient engine for them. Maybe you can go to a lower emissions diesel or something like that, which is what most people are proposing. Mm -hmm. But no one is saying we're going to be able to power the entire surface fleet of the world electrically in the foreseeable future. These are massive ships, and they also are in use continuously. They have a very high, uh, what's called, duty cycle. And then you go into mm-hmm. the, all the other transportation like the trucks, the same thing. Yeah, we can see a little bit of a trajectory there about adopting electric trucks. But again, in 15 years, we haven't got yet one v- popular uh, vehicle out there yet. That well, is, you can't even buy an electric truck at the moment. Like, exactly. You, I mean, there's, there's you know, available. the Tesla, yeah. Mercedes. Are, uh, yeah, yeah, but they haven't shipped. I mean, I guess shipped. my point is you can't buy one today. Yeah. And as again, you look at adoption curve, you understand the change rates. And you say, okay, in 15 years, we're not going to see anything. So that's, that means that the part of carbon that is allocated to non-consumer or commercial vehicles going forward is not very compressible. The only way you're going to compress it is that you actually do less of it. And that means you have to tolerate less transportation in general, that less, mm-hmm. less goods need to move around and less people need to move around on an airplane, for example. And that demand is not evaporating. And, and so the, the problem is that the, the only compressible part of transportation is the three from, from consumers, which, of course, is compressible because they're all driving 3,000-pound vehicles to carry 100 pounds. There might be some opportunity for efficiency there. Absolutely, as there our, is. Absolutely. I mean, just, if you just banned, and this is one of the early exercises I, I did, if you just banned SUVs, you would save more than one gigaton a year. And that's just a matter of people saying none of this like, nonsense. Like, we ban them from today as in, or we ban them as in you could now own them and drive them from here on out? Well, ban them from being sold at least, you know. Well, mm. I, I would say if you remove them from the road, yes, you get the biggest impact. But here's the thing that, I mean, that is sort of happening, but very slowly. And it has to happen through emissions regulations. And it's happening in Europe and mm. it's happening in the U.S., especially with the new administration. They want to really crank the numbers up. But it's still slow. My point, though, is, again, let's remember Plan Norway. What happens if 70% switches to electric and the rest is... I'm waiting with bated breath. Let's go. (laughs) Okay. The result is that CO2 emissions from the personal car are going up by 66%. Right. So instead of going down from three to one... Like a pretty good scenario for electric cars, we're still going up. We are three now. We should be at one in order to carry the weight for transport. We are going to be at five so from three to five instead of three to one so the delta mm-hmm. is is more than four per year and every year between now mm-hmm. and then it's it's higher and therefore all of that carbon goes up in the atmosphere and stays there and heats us up now this was the dramatically and scary first result looking at plan norway and so i decided to come up with plan b which was you know obviously we left a few things on the table one would be, what if we actually ban internal combustion early and effectively crank up 
EV adoption even faster. And I call so this, this is, plan- for example, like what the UK has already said from 2030, you yes. can't sell internal combustion Well, engines. 2035, I don't know if everyone's, Sorry, anyone's gone yes. yeah, below 35. Maybe there's a 33 goal think, out there. Some, some automakers are looking. Anyway, but yeah. Yeah, some automakers are proposing that they themselves will stop making, like Volvo or GM will stop making internal combustion vehicles. And But these are some of the, not the biggest names yet, um, very quiet mm-hmm. out of Japan, mm-hmm. for example, which is a big maker. And, you know, we got to get, you know, China on board, we got to get Korea on board, we got to get all of Europe and so on. So these are the big automaking countries. And, you know, I think the dominoes will fall. They, you know, they're all going to make commitments, but mm-hmm. it needs to be enforced globally and, and it needs to happen. And I even cranked it up to 2033. I said, okay, all internal combustion sales are banned by 2033. Now, remember, it was very difficult to get 400 million EVs made under the plan B, which I actually I called it plan Greta. And the reason yeah. I, I say <laughs> that is that is that I think that's what the appeal has been. It's like, let's get the authorities in charge to actually slap you know people down and say, you cannot do this anymore. It's not just saying, okay, let's incentivize markets. Let's create, you know, nice, you know, incentives and disincentives, but we've got to impose bans. And that's what plan Greta is. It's like, let's just ban the internal combustion engine altogether. But 2033, that means the EV adoptions go zero to 100 in 16 years, right? That's how, that's, that's what that implies, zero to 100. So no more internal combustion. That means the yearly production of EVs is like over 100 million a year. That means that we have to manufacture mm-hmm. between now and then, we have to manufacture over 800 million EVs, again, because that's the still trying to hit that target that we have in terms of population growth and all these other factors. And so this plan B actually, and I'll cut to the chase, it gets us about only a 30% increase in the CO2. A lot of that has to do with the fact that- So we still we st- get a 30% increase. We don't actually, we still aren't even going down. So we go from No, no, what, no, nothing's to- going down. Nothing's going down. And so we're again, still going uh, from three to four. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so we right. are seeing okay. uh, we are seeing the reduction in growth a little bit, but it's it's fundamentally this is so draconian again that it requires the EV industry to go mental, and you know we've got to actually restrict an existing technology and, and shut it down before its end of life. So. That was, and then that came up. Totally. I, said, I mean, okay. and this is the thing that I think is kind of crazy. You're even mentioning that. I mean, it's like you're saying to people, not only will we make you buy an electric car, we're going to ban you from buying the old ones. But you can imagine the amount of lobbying that will go from all the car makers will say, there's no way, we cannot do this. We are, you're going to bankrupt the company. I mean, well, nobody and, would And not to mention to that people will not, there's a demand question, not just a supply question. You know, if you do so, you may not have any cars to buy. You know, people might end up hoarding cars because, you know, they'll end up hoarding cars and buying them and not using them and to, hoping to sell them at a profit to their friends because there won't mm, be any cars to buy. Mm-hmm, totally. That's the sort of thing, you know, markets are tend to regulate themselves with pricing and other factors that, you know, allow you to decide where to put your resources. But when you get into a government mm-hmm. banning things, then markets get a different mind you know you get the gray markets and you get you know black markets and you get you know smuggling and you get all these other things that actually start to to become dominant activities and so the Mm -hmm. you know i was imagining this is plan greta because it's not a market driven process it's not even a regulatory driven process it's a sort of a a prohibitionist model Mm -hmm. but you know technology prohibitionism and so that's plan b it only gets us to to see personal transport go up by by 30 percent 
And then I said, let's let's look at plan C then. Yeah, I'm not happy. Let's look at plan C. And plan C is even more draconian. And it actually has to do with the destruction of property rights. Plan C <laughs> Whoa, Horace, is a buyback. Into some interesting territory here. Go for it. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, this is fascinating. Well, the first, the first is like, you know, smacking. The first one is kind of providing carrots and sticks to the market. And totally. the second one is like, you know, literally cutting off access, you know, destroying, you know, supply to some extent. And the third one is actually saying, whatever you already paid and bought, we're going to confiscate it. That's a, sort of a more a more dramatic way of putting it, but really the way that this is framed is it's a buyback program. So what that means is that right. not only do you do you the have like clunkers, but for climate yes. version. But in in some ways, okay, it is preserving somewhat property rights. But it's effectively saying you better give up your your vehicle, or it's going to be you know it's going to be more or less uh, not just forced to be obsolete, but we're, you know, you're better off taking a lump sum early and before, you know, things get much worse. And so the buyback mm. program, you know, I don't know how to engineer it or what it'll cost, but effectively it, the objective is to starting in 2024, three years from now, every government in the world says you'll have the option initially, but eventually you, you won't have the option anymore, but you have to turn in your gasoline vehicle because we're not allowing mm -hmm. it anymore. So not just stopping sales, mm -hmm. but stopping usage of internal combustion. And that is the most draconian thing because again, a lot of the, remember, the cars bought today are still gonna be used in, in three years, are still gonna be used 15 years from now. So whoever's left mm -hmm. holding that vehicle and suddenly says, well, we'll give you 2000, or we're gonna, you know, your, your registration is void. You're gonna be forced to turn in your vehicle. And that plan C, I don't have a name mm. for it. You know, if you have a suggestion, please send it to me because it has, it's a lot even more draconian than, than Plan Greta. So the idea the, under that plan is that you effectively do eliminate the internal combustion engine from the use, from use in the roads by 2035. Effectively, there's very few. Yeah, left. I mean, We've gone from politically very, almost insanely challenging to politically impossible. But I hear you. Politically it's, impossible. It's, it's, it's also one of these things of like, but, but where do we get to at the end of that? Does that actually get us to the target? No. Right. I'll, I'll be okay. blunt. <laughs> it doesn't. It actually okay. gets, you, gets you to reduce the target somewhat to about half. So it goes from three to about two, uh, two, two or, or sorry, uh, to about one and a half. But the target is one right. uh, because, you know, the whole sector has got to contract. That means that it doesn't quite meet target, but it might be something that people say, okay, at least transport's doing its share. Now, what I want to point out again, let me do the sums here for Plan C because it includes the need to produce 1.2 billion electric cars between now and then. Again, we went from 400 to 800, now to 1.2. We need to produce mm -hmm. these. And I've actually forgot to, I left a few things out. Under Plan Greta and C, I'm actually also assuming the manufacturing costs in CO2 is down. I'm assuming that operating costs are down so that actually the EVs that are being built are being built with with much lower footprint, actually 75% reduction. And I'm assuming also that they're, that they're operating at much lower footprint instead of 100 grams, but, you know, like 25 grams per kilometer, which is, again, unobtainable right now with current technologies. But I'm saying, you know, let's, mm. let's, let's be as aggressive as we can and hopefully we'll hit our targets. Mm. So transportation, you get to see under this analysis, you get to see just much how much harder it is 
to crush these goals that are out there. And my point is simply this, after you build up this last accounting of the demand on the plan C, and you say, you lost me, you know, at plan A in terms of plan Norway, in terms of, can we actually build that many cars? You lost me, because I don't think we can. Mm. On the plan B and C, we actually have to produce incrementally twice or three times more cars, okay? And we have to do it in the same time frame. We have to do it more efficiently. We have these vehicles have to be even more lower impact in terms of their costs to produce and to operate. So, mm. what? I, of course, the, our audience knows what the answer is. But the, the way I'm presenting it is that there's one more hint at, at this. And I talked about the global population of cars. I also talked about global population of people now, which I say the urban population is going to grow between now and then from 50% to 66% of all people will live in cities. It's going to continue till 2050 where 76% of people are going to be living in cities, you know, three quarters of the population. And yet, and this is one of those graphs I put together, which just kind of blew my mind a little bit. When you think about the car today, in terms of its configuration, in terms of its safety requirements, in terms of the road infrastructure, in terms of parking, in terms of signage, the speed limit, your driver's license, your driver's education, your kind of rules of the roads. The, the look at a sign. Sometime you drive. Mm. Look at look at that picture on the sign. You know, there's a, a working person that you know says road works. So it's a person with a shovel. Or I, I, there are some the interesting signs like, oh, you're coming to a railway crossing. What's the what's what's the the uh, the symbol that's representing a railway? It was a steam engine. Or oh, mm. there's a camera coming up, and it's like a camera with bellows. You look at yeah. all this all this infographic, all this design language out there about cars, and then you you know, you look at a pictogram, what is a car, how does it look like even? And then you realize that all the world that is car world has been designed between 1915 and 1950 because those are the formative years of the automobile. This is when the roads were constructed. This is when the, the rules were written. This is when, like, whether a car had, needs a certain distance in order to brake. Okay, that, that actually is a very important question. Like, it's in the highway code that the car has to have a certain braking distance. And that's why it determines the, you know, the speed limit. It determines how safe you should be driving behind someone else. Well, those are constructed at a time when cars didn't have the current technology. But also, they were constructed at a time, and this is the most important bit, that almost nobody lived in cities. Mm. This, the urban population in 1930, let's say roughly in the middle of that cycle was much less than 20%. I actually only started measuring it in 1950, but it was probably, you know, 15 to 20% of all people in the world lived in cities. The car yeah. was built for an agrarian economy, fundamentally, whether it's US or not, but it was built at a time when the vast number of relatively wealthy people still lived in the countryside. And the future, and present even, is of a time where we have middle to low income people living in cities by far and far more of them as well right so we have billions of people living in cities and we go you know we have mega cities of which there are dozens in there again and i, I gave this talk at micromobility germany i said look at urbanization for god's sake you know look at the numbers how do you put, mobilize this population now these that these will not move in a city <laughs> if we put them all in cars and that was my point then, is was that if you think about that and you, you add up the number of parking spots needed for all these cars to mobilize this many people in cities, think about the real estate costs 
just the costs are the trillions of dollars. And it's incredible that you would give up this precious land in an urban center to storing mm. cars. The Americans did it, but that doesn't mean everybody else will. Anyway, that was my point over a year ago. The thing I would say now is I introduced this hint to the audience. By the way, you've heard all this about what we need to do with cars to in order to, you know, to meet carbon. The problem is that on top of all that, the, the population, the users, this new population of users will be urban dwellers. And they are also lower income than you can imagine. And so th that's what you need to do. So let me summarize what you need to do. You need to provide transportation to 1.8 billion people, 70% of whom will live in cities, whose income will be $30 a day, which need to consume 25% of what a car consumes in terms of operating energy, it needs to be built at 25% of the impact in terms of deliver, you know, its manufacturing costs. So you add all these things up and you know you just basically, I spelled out a formula for micromobility. And yes. I did it without mentioning the word once up until now. And so the, the logic of the talk is to say to a non-micromobility audience is that either you choose to have a sector of the economy continue to effectively destroy the planet. Mm -hmm. And everybody looks the other way. Now, here's the, here's the political. The political calculation is this, which is I'm trying to, again, I'm not an expert in the analysis on the political aspect, but the political question will be this in 10 years. We've done all we could in terms of reducing carbon from power sector. We've done all we could in order to reduce carbon from the agriculture sector. We've basically, you know, told people to tighten their belts. We've told companies to invest billions. We've told farmers to take a cut. And we've told, we've told everybody up and down the value chain and the, and, and the demographic and, and the income groups that they all need to pay their share. And yet we're going to let everybody drive around in the fucking SUV, excuse my language, in an SUV. <laughs> Yeah, but it's true. It's so frustrating. Yep. I mean, and, it's also and, and as well. That's, I mean, the, that's the calculation. And, and then you say, you say, all right, then. Uh, that's fine. You, you poor thing. I know you got to get the kids to school. You got to drive a three-ton mm -hmm. vehicle to do so. And so at what point does this absurdity crack? At what point does the political... You know, there's another thing that I learned in the last few days, actually, which is not part of my analysis at all is that I, I was reading a, a story about SUVs, an article about SUVs, and it said that there was a time in the early noughties that SUVs were like really socially bankrupt. And they were like people saying, yeah. how dare you, right? But now yeah. because of the crossover, people are like, well, we kind of kind of are okay with it. But rather, and it wasn't even that people are even having that conversation, but rather that the conversation shifted to this plan Greta, which is like, we shouldn't shame people. You know, we shouldn't SUV shame. Uh, you know, I'll use this phrase. I don't know if anyone else has used it before, but I like it. Yeah. But SUV shaming. We're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to shame consumers. What's... We're going to force companies to stop doing this. It's like, you know, like the tobacco industry. You know, we can tell, yeah. we can nag people, stop smoking. But basically, we're going to turn up the taxes on tobacco. We're going to ban tobacco smoking in establishments, in workplaces, in bars and, and restaurants. We're going to ban it from all these places. You can't smoke on an airplane, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how we're going to stop smoking, right? Not so much telling people that's bad for you, but rather forcing them through other controls. That's what happened with SUVs is that we stopped shaming people. And I'm here to shame people. I'm not here to blame the industry 
say, oh, they, they're using clever advertising. Oh, they're playing tricks on us. You know, I'm forced. I'm a zombie. I cannot make up my mind. I must walk mm. into a dealership and buy but the, an SUV. But the argument, the counter, as you will know, will be people saying, yeah, but like, what else can I buy? I can't, you know, I can't afford a Tesla or even any other sort of electric cars. There's not even electric cars on the market that would be kind of satisfying to, to my needs. Well, I agree with you, but it's the consumer is not without fault here. And we need to look deep inside. And I would agree that, you know, we can persuade them. And that's, a, that's partly my ambition here, the purpose mm. here. It's to surface the tragedy of it. And to understand that it begins with you making a conscious decision not to get a vehicle that is stupidly bad for everyone, including yourself. And once we make that personal commitment not to buy these these vehicles and you look for alternatives and thus starting the process of fueling the adoption curve of alternative vehicles. Now, I don't just say EVs because they are too expensive, but of course we're targeting micromobility as something that yeah. should be become, it should become aspirational. It should become as important environmentally speaking as buying a Prius was in 2005, as it was, mm. you know, buying a Tesla in 2015. It's at the early adopters I mean, need I to say- I do think the framing needs to be, and this is certainly something that I've been thinking about a lot has been, you know, framing an e-bike the marketing for an e-bike should be, look, this is the single biggest thing that you can probably do to reduce your environmental footprint. If you are a single person, this is probably the single biggest thing that you can mm -hmm. do, a shift to riding an e-bike. I've heard this advice years ago. They, they simply told me, I asked, he was a physicist actually, who knows how to think about energy well. And he said, simple, if you want to do something, if you feel bad about the environmental harm you might be causing, there are two things you can do. First, actually easiest, is to stop eating meat or reduce as much possible eating meat because that meat costs a lot of carbon. And two, ride a bike more. That was years ago before we even talked about micromobility. It's two personal choices know, you can make. I know, but it's not as cool. You know, we want to be able to sell our sexy new image of e-bikes, Horace, not just simply just a basic <laughs> I'm just saying that this is old advice. This is old advice. I, and know, it I, know, I know it's old advice, but if everything that's old will be new. But I also as well, I think that we need to repackage it, right? Which is the- I agree. Matter. I, 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 get, I get why you haven't gone after the sort of the environmental movement because it's, it's one of these things of like, it's a very challenging thing. Climate change is like a politically, probably one of the most challenging problems I think that we have, right? Because it's, everybody is a sinner in the world of this, right? It's like you breathe and you consume, you are causative to the problem. And then on the other side, it's like, it's not immediately obvious what the solutions are, especially in transport, because it's like all of the, as you say, the life cycles of all the vehicles is very long and the uh, pollution is very diffuse. In other words, it like everybody contributes a little bit, but it's not, you can't kind of point at one particular thing and say, oh, this is the intervention. But, I, but again, to simplify that message down, and I think that's where the opportunity we have in the micromobility industry is to say, look, if you're serious about actually reducing emissions in transport, the way to do it is to come into this world of micro and come and join us and, and, and ride these vehicles and all this sort of stuff. Now, the one thing that I, I want to get back to is you did plan A, you, or you did plan Norway, you did plan Greta, you did the plan that is the See. super draconian, like we'll just, you know, take everything away and we'll confiscate your cars. Or, or buy this? them where back if we can afford to. Or yes. buy them back, sure, sure. But like, where do we get to if you go after a pretty aggressive micromobility based strategy for being able to reduce emissions? 
well, I haven't even done that yet. And I think it because it's it's sort of, in many ways, it is plan C. To execute on, I, I should build a, a plan the other ways. Like, let's begin with micro and where do we end up? But even implicit in plan C, there is this notion of 1.8 billion vehicles that need to be built. Oh, sorry, 1.8 billion in use, but we need point. Two billion to be built between now and then, mm-hmm. and my mm-hmm. point about that requiring all these resources and, and they each have to be made efficiently and so on. That implies, mm-hmm. in, ipso facto, it implies that they are micro vehicles. Yeah. But what I would yeah. say is, if you wanted to now do a few micro plans and say, okay, this is what happens if we if we do these in a targeted fashion, and, and then we look at the nation by nation, like you said in India, what if we have 20, 30 million sit-down scooters available electric within, you know, per, per year. I actually did build a model of, you know, the EV plan going to 70%. That's plan Norway. But then mm. I did I, mean, I did plan C by essentially illustrating it as composed entirely of micromobility. And that is e-bikes in China, North America, and Europe, you know, stand-up scooters and sit-down scooters separately in terms of their growth ramps. And with those and, and also maybe a few heavy micromobility numbers as well. I added all these up and said, in, because they're individually studied, but never as a whole, but those segments together, those categories together, do add up to over 200 million units of production by 2035, given current growth trends. There is no question and it wouldn't even be noticeable. Like you mean existing of what we what we have already that we expect is already coming down the pipe. Just given with the growth rate, without right. any planned. Ex- yeah. yeah. The, given the growth rate and demand so already, we're going to have million units of those things. Okay. Yes, cool. and those yeah. are easy to sort of believe because again, it's following a trajectory, and they are going to need batteries. They are going to need CPUs and other things. But I think those can be managed. Again, there are billions and billions of smart devices being built. With with batteries, by the way, with if you think about phones and tablets and PCs, and then you think about all these other gadgets and from toothbrushes and other things that need batteries, they don't need as many as a as an e-bike, but they need some. And so the point being that those markets do exist, and no one's kind of aggregating them and asking what is the sort of footprint of this. But it's clear that because it's a grassroots effort, because they're largely ignored, because they're like, you know, you notice all these fringe factories building. You know, I just know the statistic that was quoted last week. It was that there are 63,000 e-bike companies in, in China alone. Now, now, they may not all be making bikes. They're listed as having to do with, with e-bikes. But, you know, that's how China is. You know, they, if they do something, they do it on the three orders of magnitude higher than you imagine. I mean, I thought I thought in Europe there were 700 e-bike mm. companies, but 63,000, I cannot imagine. And 300,000, by the way, in supporting that industry, so not directly in manufacturing e-bikes. So the, the point is that though that all goes mm. under the radar. It's suddenly, when you add it up, you say, oh, actually it can deliver 200 million units a year without too much breaking of sweat. Whereas the car industry is going to struggle to do 80, I, th- I think it's un- unachievable in, in 15 years. So on the supply side, yeah. micro delivers. On the consumption side, micro delivers. On the demand side, that's where we have to do a little bit of soul searching. And this is why I'm taking this appeal straight to the public. I'm not saying that we in the industry need to, we certainly do need to, but it's not sufficient to deliver vehicles and, and, and services. But the thing about the consumer has to appreciate this on, the, on an existential level and needs to change their behaviors. And there is an element of shame missing. I think there's a shame deficit right now 
with respect to macro mobility, auto mobility, it's that people are just shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, like you said, what choice do I have? We need to make an effort. Yes, I, I guess my point is, is that Yes, they are saying that. Is it what a phrase? Is this a Finnish phrase or is it a, a Swedish phrase? And it talks about like like plane shame. Yes, it's so Swedish. Like to, if you take flights, that there's a yes. yes. Uh, oh, is it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Flugskam or something like that. It's like yeah, flight yeah, shame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and I can foresee, I can foresee that coming. I can foresee that sort of you know, obviously that I think is going to become a thing, especially post COVID. You know, like when we in theory can start moving around again. That you know, hey, you should be able to do all these things on Zoom. You don't need to go and do all these trips, etc. But I certainly think as well that like the job of the micromobility industry, and there's anything that I can think of in terms of where I'm focusing my efforts in terms of what micromobility is trying to do and where I think we should in general be focusing into the industry. It's building those solutions that meet the job to be done of everything that the car has so that you can come along and you can, so it is it's heavy micromobility it's all this stuff that's up to 750 kgs and saying these vehicles can be lightweight and they can be performant to a car and all this sort of stuff and doing that and then going further and further down so that we get the e-bikes and they just become better quality and all that sort of stuff and the reason for that is that you can then point to someone who says i have no choice and say you're wrong you actually have a choice because yes. at the moment yes of course of course I, I think it's, it's a, very justifiable right? it's absolutely correct of course but i'm speaking we are speaking among friends and so my point is to be clear that i think we have given out that message but now the p- purpose of this research the purpose of this analysis and this new narrative is is to take this message to the public and the message to the public is not driven simply by the first two legs that i mentioned which are hey there's a great economic story that may not be motivating them because obviously you're speaking to the supply side and the second leg which would be think about all the cool things you can do with this and why this is liberating that mm. might speak to mm-hmm. them and but it's all carrot the question is how do you also create a sense of urgency how do you create a demand that is especially if those early adopters remember early adopters are motivated as you know as leaders are to change to do something different to move forward to make progress and those are the people you need to speak to right now to say this is about creating a movement this is this is about conscience this is not just fun and money this is existential and this is why i'm mm. i think we need that ammunition for them because it's not just me but it's going to be thousands of people who go, go and take this message to everyone out there and saying no it's not acceptable it's not socially acceptable it's not morally acceptable to drive an suv and or pickup truck and you you know we have criticisms these things are big enough now that they are causing deaths because of visibility questions. They're so big, they're so enormous, they're so obese that actually the driver is effectively blinded by it. It interferes with normal operation of the vehicle. It's unparkable. Mm. And yet they, they continue to be made and they continue to be bought. And it, it's not just a, you know, a factor of if you ask the manufacturer, they'll say, well, this is where the demand is. It's time for that demand to end. That's the point. Mm. And, and that end will come not only from saying, here's alternative A that's really sweet, but it's more like you realize that what you're doing is not only endangering others, but you're endangering yourself and your own family and your own children. By the way, 
the framing of the talk, you'll see it when you see it, but the, the framing of the talk is multi-generational, meaning that it spans mm. decades and you'll start to see that the impact you're making today, especially with a vehicle that has a 40-year life, is, mm. you know, once you commit to this, it is like committing to having a child or a pet. It's like you bring into being an object which has potential to consume and potential to cause harm, and it needs to be seen as harm and not just benefit. And, and by mm. the way, it's a member of a population. And I don't know if I should say it's an anthropomorphized, it's, it's like thought of as a person. But if you also think about carbon itself, carbon forms a population. It goes into the atmosphere, stays there. It has a lifespan. It happens to have a lifespan of hundreds of years because it doesn't go back into the ground for hundreds of years. And that's the problem with synchronizing lifespans. What is the lifespan of that vehicle? What is the lifespan of your decision to buy that vehicle? What is the lifespan of you and your children and their children and their children's children? And now you start to see how consequential it is to make these decisions about vehicles. So the subtitle of the talk is The Demographics of Personal Vehicles. It's not about micromobility, but to understand that personal vehicles have a life of their own and that life is unfortunately going to end other lives. And that's what the calculus has to be at this time. Mm -hmm. Well, look, as I said, Horace, I am just so excited that you've decided to t tackle this topic because as I say, as anybody who just does this podcast any, at any length knows, I, you know, I am in this in part because I think of the micromobility, like I, I have always felt that micromobility would be a very meaningful contribution to decarbonizing transport. And it's been incredibly exciting to just, you know, watch you as you went and kind of discovered this, the challenge that we're facing existentially with, with, with the climate issues. And then also as well that you kind of got to the thesis that, yeah, maybe micromobility might be able to help us here. Thank you. And I'm really looking forward for folks who want to kind of obviously like, we want to see this presentation because I'm going to be out there shouting it from the rooftops. What's the sort of time frame? Like, where are you at with it? It's hard to tell how it's going to go out into the world, but stay tuned. It's definitely a matter of weeks, not months. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, look, anybody who follows Horace or myself on Twitter will be hearing about this. And yeah, look, I'm, I'm incredibly excited. So uh, thank you, Horace, as always. And yeah, signing off today.